The scripture verses, it will tell you. Thank you. Oh, it's recording now. And for bigger books, like Acts, so here's one chart that overviews the whole book, but then the following pages go into detail for each section, so it'll collapse as part of the book that's not in view. So, uh, the fun's teaching through these. So, this, the paperback, which is over at the SES booth, is expanded, so there's Text that's not in the Logos version, and we made some pictures in there. So. Some people like the digital instead. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and begin. We are, our recording is underway. Give me just a moment to get uh, this going. All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time. Our faithful Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, who has opened up the way for us, who has given us hope and new life in him. Uh, We rejoice that we're here this morning and have the opportunity to uh, delve into your word and to be encouraged in our faith. And we pray that our our hope in the gospel would grow stronger as a result of this time together. And our understanding of this portion of your word also would grow deeper. And may we be a blessing to others and encourage them uh, in these truths as well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, as you know, there's a handout here, and, and some of what I say is here. In fact, everything that's here, most of it anyway, I will talk through, and I'll share some additional things uh, with you as well. Uh, and let me, as part of the introduction, uh, let me tell you a little bit of the background to this study. Um, earlier this year, my mother of 82 years went to be with the Lord, and I was uh, honored to give her memorial service. And one of the things I like to do at memorial services for believers is to take their favorite passage and do a brief exposition of that and tie it in with their life. Uh, My mom's favorite book was Philippians. So uh, I spoke at her service on heaven and the hereafter in Philippians. Um, And of course, as a preacher, I'm frustrated because I'm having to chop, 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 chop. And I got it down to, I think, 18 minutes. Uh, But so you guys get the extras, (laughs) all the things that I wish I could have talked about. And I've added some, uh, some new features uh, as well. Now, as, as far as the topic that we'll be getting into today, um, we're going to overview some of the references to heaven and the hereafter in Philippians. And one thing, uh, really what I'm trying to do is show how Paul's hope for the life to come is nestled within a context of tremendous adversity. And I know as uh, teachers, we're, we're aware that Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. But I was surprised as I combed through the book how many, many references to hardship uh, that there were. Uh, we're going to spend actually quite a bit of time on things on the earth before we get to the, the end of our lesson, which focuses on what Paul has to say about heaven and the hereafter here in Philippians. Uh, I'm going to try to limit most of my comments to the book of Philippians. Um, Obviously, Paul has a lot to say about hardship in other places. We've heard some great messages this week from 2 Corinthians and last night from 2 Timothy, where he's talking about hardships and as well as his hope for heaven. But I want to deal mostly with the encouragement that Paul shared with the Philippian saints. Um, and you can see that in your handout there in the background or in the introduction section, here's a, a statement, an umbrella that we're going to use to put over all of our thoughts this morning. Despite living under the shadow of death, The Christian can live joyfully by nurturing a biblical hope of heaven and the hereafter. 
Now, I'd want to spend a little time in background, not a whole lot, but I'm a big believer in understanding the background of a particular book. So oftentimes we parachute into texts and don't have any idea what's going on in the terrain round about us. So um, on your handout, I'll just uh, go over the things there at the bottom of the page. This, uh, the recipients are a mostly Gentile church at Philippi. Philippi had grown into a really magnificent Roman city. It was originally a Greek city, as you can maybe guess by the name uh, Philippi, named after King Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It had a really proud military history, even in the Roman era. This was the place where the Roman forces defeated the armies who had assassinated Julius Caesar. And sort of in honor of that victory, Rome rebuilt Philippi, and um, it was populated by a lot of Roman veterans of the war who had villas there. And they turned Philippi into a colonial city, which meant that if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were regarded to be a citizen of Rome. Uh, in fact, there's even uh, in the stories in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is at Philippi, part of the tumult uh, is that you know they, they, can't, they can't be doing these things. This is against Roman law. And later on, when Paul's in prison, uh, in jail there, he appeals to his Roman citizenship, and that has a lot of traffic and a lot of weight in that situation. And I think Paul plays on this background at least one spot in the book, in that famous verse in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, where he talks about living as citizens. Uh, that's the, the literal rendering that uh, the New American Standard uh, puts it this way, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. More literally, live as citizens uh, and that would really resonate with the Philippians because they were citizens of Rome in a way which people in the cities round about them uh, were not. I'll comment about that tie-in a little bit later on. And as far as when uh, the church was founded, this would have been during Paul's second missionary journey uh, around the years 49 to 51. And you can, of course, we read about that in the book of Acts chapter 16. The first European convert is one to the Lord there. I'm not sure that Paul and everyone thought we were finally in Europe because back in those days, you know, uh, one side of the Aegean versus the other, it was all part of the, the same world. But um, you also know Paul there is arrested and beaten and jailed. And uh, there at midnight, he and Silas are singing hymns. Uh, so from the very beginning of his experience with the, Rome, uh, with the Philippians, Paul had modeled this notion of being content in Christ in whatever his circumstance and showing that he was strong and able to be spiritually vibrant in whatever his circumstances were, like what he speaks about in chapter 4. Now, as far as the occasion to this letter, if you go on the inside of your handout, um, Paul is in prison, but he has had repeated contacts with the Philippian church. This is a church which he was unusually close with. In fact, at the end of the book, in verse 15, chapter 4, he talks about how they were the only church that he had this unique giving relationship with. Generally, Paul refused monetary gifts, uh, at least on any sort of ongoing way. But he, had, he, he intimates that he had received gifts again and again. And what that demonstrates is that there was an unusual level of trust and understanding that he had with the Philippians. They knew that he was not in it for the money that he was not abusing uh, their kindness, as opposed to people at Corinth. Some of the pockets of people at Corinth uh, considered Paul to be a money grubber and that he was uh, had ulterior motives. Um, Paul didn't have any concern about them, so he 
he received their gifts, and this letter is partly, not entirely, but it's partly a thank you letter to the Philippian church for sending a gift over a great distance to him. Um, now, one thing that's fascinating to me, and I'll have you take a look at the first chart that's uh, at the top of the second page, is uh, reading between the lines of what he says to them in this letter, there are six interchanges that Paul has with the Philippians during the time that he writes this letter. Uh, and actually, there were two others, because you see number one there in the chart, he founds the church around the year AD 50 during his second missionary journey. And five years later, on his third missionary journey, he comes through that region and would have visited Philippi uh, again. But then, in AD 61, 62, Paul is in prison in Rome. This is at the end of the book of Acts. And the people in Philippi hear that he's in prison. Now, let's think about the distance between Rome and Philippi. That's, that's a distance, a road distance, uh, travel distance of 730 miles, which is a journey... The fastest route is going to be seven to eight weeks, and that includes one to two days by sea. So uh, let's think about it. Paul's in Rome, and from Rome, the Philippians get word he's in prison. So that requires about two months for word to get to them. And uh, then point number uh, four in the chart, the Philippians send one of their members, Epaphroditus, the 730 miles, to give Paul their gift and also to give Paul his assistance while he's there. So that's another seven to eight weeks, plus whatever time in between in getting their gift ready. While, Paul, while Paphroditus is in Rome, uh, or on the way, we don't know exactly when, he becomes deathly sick. And um, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 25, that the people in Philippi heard that he was sick. So that meant that a message had to get back to them another seven to eight weeks. And then... Epaphroditus in Rome heard that they heard that he was sick and was worried about what they were thinking another seven to eight weeks. And now this letter is being sent back to them with Epaphroditus. So all of that, you know, allowing for some space between them. We've had about a year of correspondence that's gone, and we're coming in on the tail end of it here. One other thing Paul tells them, number eight, is that he's going to send Timothy later. Uh, so at some point in the future, they'll have more word from Paul about how, his, about how his case is going. What I find useful about that is, you know, when we live in an era of instant communication. We've got these things on our hips and our watches sometimes, and we're in contact with the rest of the world. Really. For much of human history, that's not the way it's been. You send word, and you wait, and you wonder, and maybe worry. Uh, how's it going to be received, and are they going to get it, and, and then it comes back. And so all of that kind of ratchets up a level of uncertainty as to how things are going. This is part of the context of hardship that Paul is in, the Philippians are in, and that Epaphroditus is in. So uh, this is part of the occasion. It's a thank you for this, this gift, and also to let them know how Paul's doing and how Epaphroditus is doing. But there's another reason. The reason that there's four chapters and not just half a chapter, you know, like the end of chapter four is really the thank you note. You were so good to do this, and God bless you for doing this, and I didn't really need it, but it's good that you did it. You know, that, that's the thank you portion. But before that, there's, you know, three and a half other chapters which address pastoral issues. Because Epaphroditus was not just a courier, he was also a messenger. He was able to report to Paul that... There were 
not huge issues, but there were some issues in the church that, that really needed to be addressed. One of them is that false teachers were around. In chapter 3, Paul famously says, beware of the dogs. And he actually goes on for quite a distance about cautioning them against these are the, the Judaizers who seem to always be on Paul's steps. Um, so at the beginning of chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he gives a warning about false teachers. They don't seem to have gotten a foothold yet, but they are always lurking. And then in chapter 4, I think we get to Paul's biggest concern. There were some relational tensions between some key people in the church. And particularly, there's two women that Paul names, Uodia and Suntuke. Uh, and, you know, if you, get, if you get named in one of Paul's letters, there's something significant, either about, either about what you're doing right or maybe what you're not doing right. And now he speaks lovingly of these women. They are key women. They helped him in the, in the work of the ministry 10 years earlier when he had founded the church and perhaps in his subsequent visits. Uh, they're, but they're, their difference is not doctrinal, um, but they, can't, they, they, they cannot connect with each other for whatever reason. So Paul actually says, we, you need some mediated peacemaking. And he calls on another brother, an unnamed brother, to, to work with these women to help them. And, uh, and I think all of the, the applications about, you know, let your moderation be known to all men and thinking the right things is within this context of, of conflict. In fact, I, really the purpose of the book is not about joy, though joy is a big theme in the book. You know, the, the letter's not really a manual on how to have joy. It's, it's really about having a joyful unity with one another. The first command of the book is that you strive together for the work of the gospel. You see that in chapter 1, verse 27. If you'll uh, glance at that again with me. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together, not striving against one another. Uh, and, and Paul wants them to focus on the things that are most important. Earlier in the chapter, in, in uh, verse 10, chapter 1, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Approve the things that are excellent. Now, when I was young, I would hear uh, devotionals on that verse, and it was often twisted into something bizarre with the best of intentions. You know, we should work, we should do our best, give God what's excellent because, you know, prove things that are excellent. But Paul's not talking about things that are aesthetically pleasing. He, he's talking about things that excel in importance. Focus on the things that are most important. And, and as you do that, and as you abound in love and knowledge, uh, you, you put a price tag on the things that matter most instead of the things that are less important. A lot of, a lot of conflict is based upon uh, elevating things of, of lesser significance. So all that to say, I think this is the primary purpose of the book. And if you'll take a look at the, the back page on the chart, there's a, the visual outline chart that this is an excerpt from, uh, from the visual outline charts book. That's over at the SCS Press. Uh, up at the top there, there's a purpose uh, bar, and it says, Paul encourages the Philippians to work hard at maintaining a joyful unity in their common life of the gospel 
so the work for the Lord may not be hindered by relational conflicts or threatened by false teachers who might polarize them. And that, I think, is the dominant reason that Paul writes more than just thank you, that he sends them a four-chapter letter. All right, well, back to the, the inside. We'll talk about the, some of the personal situations that are going on. And, and these are no uh, mystery to you. This is no revelation. Paul, of course, is imprisoned. Paul uh, always seems to be getting himself in trouble with the authorities. My dad, who was a pastor, joked often that whenever Paul went into a new town, the first thing he did was look for the jail because he figured there was a good chance he might end up there at some point. So when Paul writes this letter around AD 61, he is having a very unique jail ministry. <laughs> he is, uh, although uh, he, he's, not in, and he's not in the Mamertine prison at this point. He is under house arrest, according to the book of Acts. House arrest, now that's still no vacation. Um, he has a Roman soldier who is assigned to him. Um, sometimes Paul speaks about my chains, and it, it, it's possible that's metaphorical for the imprisonment. He calls himself, uh, in the book of Ephesians, which he wrote uh, a year earlier, I'm an ambassador in chains. But whether those chains are metaphorical or not, he, he is not a free man. He is cooped up. He's waiting to go through the process of the Roman court system. Uh, while Paul is there, he is busy. He is receiving communiques from the churches. He's also having some conflict with the church at Rome, unfortunately. We learn about that in this chapter. There are people from Rome visiting him, and he's getting reports that there's people out there who want to distance themselves from you. So he's having to do some damage control with that. He's sending associates out here and there. He writes during this time period the letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to Philemon and sends those all by his trusted courier, Tychicus. And then a year after that, he writes this letter. Uh, and to the Philippians, he will refer to his imprisonment, depending on how you count it, seven to eight times. Uh, and sometimes speaking more generally about his, uh, his circumstances, which of course refer to his imprisonment. Uh, and of course, another personal situation is Epaphroditus, the beloved messenger. He is deathly sick. He has brought them... Paul, they brought, he's brought to Paul their gift, and he's also brought news, and somewhere in there he has become deathly ill. We'll say a little bit more about him later. And from Epaphroditus, Paul learns that the Philippians are somewhat troubled, somewhat. They, they are nowhere near being like the churches of Galatia. You know, Paul gets into the first chapter of the Galatians, and you know, there's, there's no, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. <laughs> there's more like, I marvel that you are so soon turned to another gospel. You know, and to the Corinthians, he gives words of grace, but before long, there's deep, deep trouble that he's having to unpack. The Philippians, though, are a good church, one of the most solid churches that he has. Their problems are relatively mild. But Paul knows that it doesn't take much for a good church to degrade and to degenerate and to decay. And so to, to forestall that, he, he takes up the pen, led by the Spirit, to deal with the outward hostility that they're facing. You know, they, they live in a pagan, hostile world. He talks about that in chapter 2, verse 15, so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There were the outside influence of the false teachers that we talked about earlier. Uh, look with me, if you would, at chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. 
Uh, he, he called them the evil workers, the dogs, in, uh, earlier in the chapter. In verses 18 and 19, he says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. There's that outside troubling of the church. And then there's that internal disunity that they were having. And again, this is, I believe, the main purpose Paul writes this letter as he tells them to strive with one spirit, one mind, to do, chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without murmuring and complaining. And particularly the two women, uh, Uodius and Suntike, to live in harmony in the Lord. So those are three personal situations that are big. And note with me letter D there that the, the high frequency of certain things that are mentioned Death is mentioned, death and one-time destruction, is mentioned 11 times in the book. Half of those are calls on death. Sometimes it's the death of Christ that's in view, or even the death of the false teachers, the potential death of Epaphroditus. Then there's words for concern and anxiety. Nine times there's words that talk about concern. And there's, there's, there's some kinds of anxiety that Paul says we shouldn't bother with at all. Chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your request be made known to God. But you know there are other forms of concern that he models. Like in chapter 2, verse 20, when he talks about how he's, uh, he's sending them couriers, ministers, uh, about how he's going to send them Timothy shortly, verse 24, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. And you know what? That Greek word is the same word for anxious in chapter 4. It's a godly kind of worrying. There, there is a kind of worry or care that's good. Uh, you know, the big difference is, is their intent and their focus. One kind of worrying is prayerless and obsessive and fearful. Another kind of concern is prayerful and active. It's seeking to address concerns when possible. Um, both are forms of concern. Both of them are emotionally demanding. You know, when you're concerned for people in your flock and you're praying through how to address issues that they have or you're thinking through things within your church life and how to... Uh, do better for the glory of God. There, there's a bit of stress and, and, and uncertainty. That's not necessarily sinful anxiety. The sinful anxiety that Paul warns against is the despair, the, the prayerless sort of surrender to circumstances. Um, nonetheless, both the sinful kind and the non-sinful kind of concern, nine times there's references to that. Prison is, of course, mentioned a number of times, five times explicitly, Paul says, my imprisonment or prison, and then there's other phrases like my circumstances. Suffering is mentioned four times. Chapter 1, verse 29, to you has been given not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul speaks in chapter 3, verse 8, about I have suffered the loss of all things for following after Christ. He speaks a couple of verses later, chapter 3, verse 10, of entering into the fellowship of his sufferings, Christ's sufferings. And in chapter 4, verse 12, he, he talks about how he's learned to be content even when he suffers need. It's a book of suffering. These are just uh, the high-frequency items. 
what you have below that is a, a chart that I put together a few weeks ago uh, that I'm actually going to uh, point you to a, a little bit later. Uh, as I comb through the book, I found at least 50 references to need, hardship, or stress. And, and sometimes there'll be a string of verses where the same thing is described multiple times. Mostly it's Paul's stress. Sometimes it's Epaphroditus. Sometimes it's the Philippian church, but mostly it's his. And, and looking through that, you get a feel for the, the weight of things that is is laying upon Paul. Again, I'll comment a little bit more about and summarize some things in that chart. Go with me to the third page, and we'll focus on uh, one of the great stressors that he's feeling, and that is the shadow of death. The letter has 104 verses. Nine of those verses mention death in one way or another. And, and a couple of those verses mention it more than once. 11 times out of 104 verses, that's like you know, 10% of the verses have some reference to death. And the shadow of death was over Paul. Uh, Paul is optimistic that he's going to win his court case. You, you get glimpses of that in chapter 1, chapter 2, and I, I, I think this is going to go well, and I, I plan to come see you soon. He, he has the same confidence when he wrote to the Ephesians and the Colossians a year earlier, and to Philemon. He even tells Philemon, get a room ready for me, brother. I'm planning, you know, to come that way. And, and I, I think that he does win his court case. I hold to the view that the book of Acts ends before uh, Paul is released. He's released, has a few years of ministry in which he writes 1 Timothy, and then he is rearrested and sent back to Rome, thanks to, as we were reminded last night, Alexander the coppersmith, who did him much harm. Uh, and there he is in the Mamertine prison. He's in dire straits, and he will say in Second Timothy, the time of my departure is at hand. It's a very different tone that he has in that letter. And yet, even in these better circumstances five or six years earlier, he alludes to the possibility that things could go unexpectedly. He might die. Court cases like his typically took a few years to, to finish. You think our court system is bad. It wasn't all that great in, in Rome either. If he lost, there's no prison to go send, spend a jail sentence in. You know, you're either, you lose a court case like that, you are either enslaved or executed. And he anticipates that what the, the crown would choose would be execution. If he wins, he'll be completely free. His case seemed to be going well, though it wasn't done. There was still a chance that things could go south. I mean, Caesar, the Caesar on the throne at this time is Nero, but Rome has not yet burned, so things look more positive. Nonetheless, Paul mentions his potential death six times, like in chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Uh, whichever comes about Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He lives under the shadow of death. And, you know, and this is not something unique to this period. As we heard Brother Chad's preach the other night out of 2 Corinthians, which is some years earlier. I mean, he, he talked, we have the sentence of death upon us. As we're traveling around as free people, we are, the possibility of an untimely death is always present. And we're not really certain as we go from one place to the next what the Lord has appointed for us. The shadow of death was over him. The shadow of death was over Epaphroditus, that member of the church who had brought the gift and that messenger 
Sometime during his travels, he becomes deathly ill. When Paul describes his sickness in verses 25 to 30 of chapter 2, he, he labors over his situation. He uses five different phrases uh, to discuss his situation. Uh, chapter 2, verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that you will see him again, may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him and them uh, then in the Lord with all joy, holding men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. His sickness was a direct consequence of his service to Christ. Uh, Epaphroditus' brush with death was no less noble than Paul's. The threat was different, but the, uh, the potential loss of life was all for the sake of Christ. And then, of course, compounding uh, the stress of that was the uncertainty about uh, the Philippians being worried about him. Paul was worried sick about Epaphroditus for a while, and the home church heard about it, and they were worried sick about it. And Epaphroditus heard that they heard, and he's worried about them being worried. And there's a, there's a lot of, of, of love and filial connections that are within these sections that are beautiful. But all of this adds to the, the stress that uh, is woven around them all. One last uh, thing about the shadow of death. There's the lingering shadow of Christ's death. And by that I don't mean that Christ himself was in peril of death. Of course, he's risen into life evermore. The death of Christ was some 30 years earlier. And yet that event and the things associated with it cast an even larger shadow over Paul than any of his own circumstances. Paul refers directly or indirectly to the death of Christ six times, sometimes multiple times in a verse. For instance, in, in chapter 2, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And the death of Christ, of course, was a cause of, uh, on one hand, of sorrow for those who were there, but... Ultimately, a great joy because the, the great exchange took place on the cross. There was a divine work of redemption that was accomplished there. Christ's death was more consequential than anyone else's because it accomplished something. Without the death of Christ, there's no Apostle Paul. There's no Church at Philippi. There's no Book of Philippians. There's no New Testament without the death of Christ. And the passion and the resurrection of Jesus is the, the turning point of all of history. So as much as the shadow of death is over Paul and over Epaphroditus, because they've seen how things turned out with Christ, that shadow of death over them has a much less, lesser ominous because Christ has proven he has power over death. The, the death of Christ was that rock-bottom moment for him where he became obedient to that point, even a cross kind of death. And while the death of Christ, the death was no longer any threat for Christ, there was a continuing threat for those associated with Christ. Paul talks about this in chapter 3, verse 10, entering into the, the fellowship of his sufferings. And, he, and in those verses, he, he's speaking kind of joyfully. 
you know, entering into the fellowship of his sufferings. And the fellowship of his sufferings is not so much about how when we suffer, Christ is there to give us fellowship and to encourage us, though that is true. Christ is present with us through his spirit. That is true. But this notion of fellowship, which is one of the key words in the book, is joint participation. I remember as a kid, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a church and we, we had fellowship meals and fellowship. Well, let's go have fellowship, brother. And it usually meant getting a burger or you know, having food someplace. I remember going into the dentist's office and there's this certificate on the wall and it says, fellowship of whatever kind of doctor they were. And I'm thinking, when do they have potlucks? <laughs> Obviously, fellowship there doesn't mean anything like getting together. It's talking about that they are jointly working together in a certain enterprise, a certain field. And so, likewise, within the church, we have a joint participation together in the, in the things of the Lord. We even participate to some degree in the sufferings of Christ. That is the same kind of persecution and rejection that he experienced, we can expect to participate in too. Because the shadow of the death of Christ, in a sense, hangs over us. But we are in good company, aren't we? Uh, come with me to number five in your handout, and we'll note here how the prevailing mood of the book is joy. It's, it's a, one of those high-frequency terms. I've, I've talked earlier about how imprisonment is mentioned 11 times and death is mentioned this many times and so forth. But the, the Greek root behind the words for joy and rejoice show up 16 times in Philippians. And it's, it's all over the place. More than any of the other, other high-frequency references like death or concern or prison, joy. 12 verses mention joy. That's more verses than mention death. 10% of the book has verses speaking about joy. And, you know, one of the most famous, of course, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And someone is bound to think, oh, now, Paul, you're just exaggerating. You can't really mean that. And, of course, he follows it up with, and again, I will say, rejoice. This is not an overstatement when I say this. Some people throughout the centuries have criticized Paul for statements like this, uh, saying that this counsel that he gives is unsympathetic to people's sufferings, or that this counsel he gives is impossible, it's unrealistic, it's, it's just grand overstatement and shouldn't be taken literally. But, but those kind of concerns really misunderstand Paul's counsel, because he, when he says be rejoice, he's not talking about being happy-go-lucky. He's not talking about pretending there are no problems. Happiness uh, is a kind of joy, but that's not the sort of joy, the common joy that he's, he's speaking about. Think about this important context that we've talked about already. Um, there are all kinds of troubles and sadness and stresses and concerns that Paul is dealing with hour by hour. And yet in the midst of that, Alongside of that, there is joy. See, joy... Yes? How does that fit verse 18, chapter 1? Because it's twice he mentions it in 118. How does that fit there? Chapter 1, verse 18. Let me raise my glasses so I can... Uh, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. 
Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It is fascinating, isn't it? You know, so there are people in the in the Roman church who are they're preaching a gospel message, but some of them don't like the Paul version of things. They're embarrassed by Paul, and they're publicly distancing themselves from Paul, and it's painful. And yet, he can stand. He can distance himself from that personally and see the bigger picture that the gospel seed is being sown, and this God can sort out this mess, even if I'm in prison and can't do anything about it. Yeah, and that's that's one of the great stresses that he's facing. And this is where I, I refer you back to that uh, catalog of hardships back on the second page. And I, I'm not going to go through all 50 of those points. That's something you could do later. In fact, you might find more than those 50. Uh, sometimes there's clusters of things, and I was pressed whether I should itemize every single one of them or not. But fi- at least 50 references to hardships, um, most of them about Paul's troubles, some of them about the troubles of others even the troubles of Christ, um, in addition to the references to death and imprisonment. Uh, Let me summarize some of them. Listen to this list. There's the stress of longing to see people that he's separated from. There's the stress of the uncertain legal situation. While he's mostly positive, it's not certain. He's suffering from the envy and strife of people in the church in Rome, some of the people there. There's opposition from outsiders, that provides stress to him as well as to the Philippians. He is suffering for Christ's sake. He is, as he says in chapter 4, suffering need. He is sometimes even suffering hunger. He talks about being humbled and humiliated. He has a concern that he's laboring in vain. You know, be faithful, brothers. Pursue to the end so that at the day of Christ I will not have labored in vain. There's a little stress there. He's generally concerned about the well-being of others uh, and wants them to know that. He weeps over defectors who have made themselves out to be enemies of the cross of Christ. He's concerned about the inroads of false teachers. He's distressed over news that he gets. Uh, He only mentions the news from the Philippians, but He's getting reports from various places. Some of them are quite distressing. He's concerned about his dear friend Epaphroditus being deathly sick. And if he had died, Paul said, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. He's concerned about about their unmet needs, but confident that the Lord will supply all their needs in Christ Jesus. They have needs. He has needs. So those things and others you find within that list. And yet... The thing that he mentions more than any of these things is joy. Joy. And see, this is important. Joy, which is uh, it is mentioned in this book always in the context of earthly sadness. Joy coexists with other emotions. Joy does not erase other emotions necessarily. It doesn't eliminate other feelings But what joy in the hope of heaven and the hope of the gospel and all the things that we have cause to joy for, it governs those other things. It gives them boundaries and even gives them purpose. And so that's how Paul can say to the Corinthians, sorrowing yet always rejoicing. Yes, Philippians is a book about joy, but it's joy in the midst of sadness. Uh, 
joy may not be the main topic of the book, but it is definitely the prevailing mood of the book. And it is the mood of Paul's life, one that coexists with sorrow and concern. So now we come to what the title of the seminar was about. And I want us to, well, have to be briefly consider how the hope of heaven and the hereafter fuels that sort of a governing joy. Yes, sir. That's right. And that's part of the, the governing them. So we, we weep, but not as those who have no, no hope, for instance. He'll tell the Thessalonians. Um, so the, the grief of the Christian who is operating in joy, that contentment of the soul, you know, is, uh, is not unbounded. There, there's a gospel-shaped boundaries around so our concern. So does he say concern. it's the strongest, should be the strongest? I, I would I would say so, and it doesn't mean that necessarily in any at every particular moment that you know I I'm, I'm focusing on joy right now because I mean when you get when you get word that your spouse has just died, you know you you need to that, that's a time for weeping and, and the like. But still in the background there's like this operating system of joy, <laughs> if you will, that kind of keeps uh, everything tethered together. To use a 20th century. Colossians 1.24, like when you're saying that, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Yeah, that's right. Sake. That's right, yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how the hope of heaven uh, is at least one of the things that is fueling that. The, the hope of heaven. Notice I've split up the heaven and the hereafter because heaven is just one part of our future. Uh, there's, there's more than just dying and going to be with the Lord. Um, as far as the hope of heaven, it is the believer's next home. And Paul most famously speaks about this in chapter 1, verses 21 to 24, uh, <clears throat> where he says, for, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean faithful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. And I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and to be with Christ... But that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Uh, earlier, of course, Paul's mentioned his legal situation. And he, he really does expect he's going to win his case, but he's not, he's not entirely sure. Uh, even though he's optimistic, he's aware things could turn south. And so he says, well, I don't know. I mean, if it does go badly, look at what I gained. Paul knows that leaving this life results in um, enjoying the immediate presence of Christ. I, I find it fascinating that I looked through some Catholic resources because I was puzzled. How are they going to deal with a verse like this in which there's no purgatory? You know, and there's a lot of uh, what seemed to me to be gymnastics, you know, hopping around and not actually getting to the, to the, the particular point. And, often saying, well, purgatory is in Christ's presence. You know, it's like, you know how do we get that? Uh, I, I suppose someone might argue, well, if Paul was a saint, therefore <laughs> he didn't have to go through that. But I think Paul was modeling for them the kind of hope that they can have, isn't he? Um, 
leaving this life results in coming into the immediate presence of Christ. And, and Paul is conflicted as to how to center his desires. You know, what should I be thinking about the most? What should I be wishing for? Maybe he's even puzzled about how he should center his prayers. You know, uh, heaven would be so much better personally, but his continued presence could bring about so much good ministerially. Paul's hope of heaven gave him incredible confidence. You know, sometimes, sometimes Christians are criticized for being, the old saying is, so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Okay, and I get it. There, there are some people who are kind of detached from reality, <laughs> you know. I don't find that to be generally true, though. And, and I think we see in Paul someone who is so heavenly minded, he is ready for all kinds of earthly good. And, and that's the sort of mentality we need. Heaven is the next home of the believer Heaven, also in Philippians, is the place of Christ's glory. Remember in chapter 2, in the middle of that chapter, where he speaks about how Christ who had suffered and set aside his glory and became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Now God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Our Lord Jesus is still incarnate. He is still has human flesh, but he is no longer in any state of humiliation. Christ not only regained all the enjoyment of divine glory that he set aside in his kenosis, he has also he's regained that enjoyment and he has gained a glory in his humanity which he only had glimpses of in his life, in his days in the flesh. And that's why it says that at the name of Jesus, that's his earthly name, his human name. There is no human with more glory than Jesus. There is no one else who is the God-man. This God-man is the Lord of heaven who awaits there for us. And if we should go before he comes we will be in his glorious presence. Amen. One other thing about heaven that's mentioned in this book, heaven is the headquarters of Christ's return. The headquarters of Christ's return. And you see this in chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, where he says our citizenship is in heaven. And remember, I'll cue you back to what we said earlier about Philippi being a colonial city. Every Philippian citizen is a citizen of Rome uh, but Paul tells the, the brothers and sisters there we have a citizenship that's even greater our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself just as Philippi was turned into a colonial city to model to the rest of the region what Rome was like, what Rome could do. So the church is set here to be a model of the goodness and the godliness of King Jesus and of the kingdom to come. The second coming of our Lord is going to be like an invasion of heaven to earth. It will usher in an age of unparalleled Righteousness, And I want to make a clarification to your handout. I, there was an editing error 
it says that Paul repeatedly refers to this as the day of Christ. Three times Paul uses this phrase. But actually, to be more clear, the day of Christ is not a single day. It's actually the beginning of those eschatological events that ends with the second coming proper. The day of Christ begins with the rapture in which we are caught up to be with the Lord. And the day of Christ continues on as the, as the judgment seat of Christ where we uh, stand before him and give account and receive rewards and culminates in the second coming proper which brings in then the kingdom and so forth. Heaven, three things about heaven. It's our next home. It's the place where Christ is in glory and it's the place from which heaven will mount its invasion of earth. But, you know, beyond heaven, we have a hope, too. And that's why the seminar is called Heaven and the Hereafter. We tend to, we tend, when we're giving comfort to those who are facing death, we tend to focus mostly on heaven. And that's not unbiblical. Paul speaks repeatedly in his letters, like even in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But, but you know, the New Testament actually says more about resurrection than it does about dying and going to heaven. There's more emphasis on that stage of our salvation experience. Paul uh, uh, speaks about the everlasting transformation. We just read that in chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. The, the resurrection, the transformation of our bodies will be the final stage of our salvation experience where redemption will be fully applied to our flesh and blood. Um, I remember years ago, there was a, a dear woman in our church who had been in a wheelchair for many, many years with a degenerative disease. And she would say to me periodically, I'm just looking forward to that resurrection body. And I remember thinking at times, well, resurrection, you know, that's interesting. Because usually you hear people talk about, I can't wait to go to be with the Lord and these and she did look forward to that, but she was also looking forward to resurrection, where the effects of curse in this flesh is reversed. And I think perhaps perhaps we don't think about that enough. And, and maybe it's because of the way we have traditionally done evangelism. You know, we often will say to, you know, the, the old evangelistic question, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and we say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I think that's a fine question. But sometimes our focus on getting to heaven makes us miss the end of our salvation experience, which is resurrection. Because there is the culmination of the reversal of the effects of sin. And, the, and, and as your notes tell you, then the everlasting participation in Christ's resurrection life, which Paul speaks about in chapters 3, verses 10 and 11. Uh, there, chapter 3, verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Now, when he speaks of sharing in Christ's resurrection power, he's thinking, at least partly, in terms of living by that power now. We have access to that same power that raised Jesus is within us. And yet he's also anticipating a full experience of that power in his flesh at the day of Christ. And look at the way he speaks of it there in verse 11, that I may attain unto it. Don't, don't misunderstand that. that. That is not the language of uncertainty. 
It's the language of humility. It staggers him to think that his knowledge of Christ will one day be so experientially full. And this is what one of the chief things that fuels his joy. Uh, Paul was heavenly minded and minded about the hereafter too. He maintained the long look. And that is exactly what we need to do as well. We all live under the shadow of death, whether we realize it or not. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we don't know when it will come. But the Christian can live joyfully by nurturing a biblical hope of heaven and the hereafter. I like the music, actually. <laughs> that's all right. I've never had that. <laughs> that's, that's all right. That, that's also a cue that I've gone too long. But <laughs> no, it isn't. So uh, the thing, and as we close here, the things that fill Paul with hope in the midst of a harsh circumstances was the gospel, the good news of Christ, that we have a certainty in our standing with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and what he has secured for us in the future. So may the Lord help us to keep that heavenly hereafter focus. And whatever list of trials you might have, maybe you have a list more than the 50 in Philippians, but it's not enough to overweight the great weight of joy that we have in here. Well, any, uh, any comments or questions before, uh, before we go today? Thank you all for, for coming. Yes, brother? I never thought I'd do this, but I'm going to. This is great. I really want to, I really appreciate this. And I preached it when I was a young pastor. I used Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Used it many, many times. And everything is true until my son got cancer. He was going to leave behind a wife and five children and a bunch of grandchildren. And I was going to lose my youngest son. And all of a sudden, neither my wife and I like to hear songs about heaven. We, we, it was almost convicting. That we, we don't want to hear about it. We're going to lose our son. And, but then afterwards, there were times of waves of sorrow again. And that's when Second Corinthians comes in. God is our comfort. Yes. There were times I said, Lord... I need your comfort, and I need it today. And I got it. But I'll tell you what, I had to struggle with the whole issue of heaven. I believed it, I preached it, I yeah. taught it. And all of a sudden, my son is there. And I've lost him. And uh, it's just like we heard last night. I taught people how to live, and I got to teach them how to die. Yes. Well, now I'm at that, that end. I'm 85. I'm at that end of things. I'm saying, okay, maybe that's me up there. But I, as you're going through this, I'm thinking, yep, 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 I agree, all the way. But all of a sudden, I thought, you know, did I really, really? Sure I did. Mm-hmm. But until we've been through that road, I never, I never thought this as a young man. We really don't understand what this man is going through who loses his spouse. And I've been with these dear ladies when they've lost their and it's heart-wrenching. But I thought it was it's entirely different when your son, your wife, your husband. And uh, that's when we cling to the word. God, I need your comfort. And he gives it. It's great. Thank Amen. you so much. Thanks, brother. This has been great today. I loved it. Thank you. Uh, now I see Corey in the back, and he wants to remind me 
that I'm going over to the booth over there. If, if, if you, now the commercial starts. If you're interested in getting a copy of the visual outline, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'll, I'll sign that for you if you like. So, uh, uh, Any other questions, comments? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about what he was saying because I was memorizing that book when one of my client's daughters was dying of cancer. It was so comforting to say even Paul said he would have sorrow upon sorrow. Yes. So it's not wrong to feel that. And That's there's right. comfort in realizing that. You can still have hope and still be incredibly sorrowful. Yeah. And still be joyful mm-hmm. while being incredibly overwhelmed. There, there's not a hint. When Paul talks about his distress or concern or sorrow, there's not a hint that any of that is excessive or sinful. You know? And yet there's still... Behind it, even in the background, there's that. There's there's the overriding contentment of his soul, uh, even with struggle, that, that, that comes back and saves the day. All right, thank you all. I, I probably, uh, I've probably gone too long, but thank you for being here. Thank you, brother.